great to see you, Life Bridge. Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you had a great week. You with me right now already? Good week? All right, good. Hey, if you're a guest too, or you're just checking things out for the first time, welcome to LifeBridge. We are, we're pumped that you're here. We'd love to have you back every week. We have services on Thursday night at 6.30. That's actually the first one of the weekend. And then today at 9.30 and then also at 11 o'clock. So we would love to have you, have you back next weekend. Bring your friend with you. If, if today is your first time, we are in a series looking at the book of Colossians. You can catch up on any of our series online, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Colossians is this letter written by this guy named Paul. And he's writing to a church in the city of Colossae, hence Colossians. And he's writing this letter because the Christians there, man, they were making a splash in a really good way. They were blessing the community around them. They were serving. They were part of redemption and transformation. And it was all because of their relationship with Jesus. So Paul's writing in this letter saying, guys, like, keep going. You're bearing good fruit. That's what the way he would call it. But then he's also writing this letter because they were also struggling with a couple different things. There was this, this confusion and tension because the church at Colossae, they were going against the flow of the current culture that they were living in. That was causing this confusion and tension and maybe even a little, bit of, a little bit of fear of the world around them. What they were wrestling with was whether or not, hey, do we adopt what the world around us has adopted, what they believe, what they practice in? They were wrestling with that tension and their own convictions, their own beliefs in Jesus. And I'm sure at different times this created some doubts because everybody doubts about what they believe at some point or another. If you've never doubted anything about what you believe, and, and it doesn't matter what you believe, you can believe whatever. If you've never had any doubts about what you believe, now this isn't necessarily true for everybody, but, but I would say maybe you've never really dove in deep to what you actually believe if you've never doubted. Like if you just, have you just accepted what you believe is truth and not really looked into it? I think there's something with doubt that all of us are like, oh, I wanna stay away from doubt. Because this thing over here that I believe, I want it to be true. Our default understanding of doubt is, if I doubt something, then that, mean, that might mean it's not true. And I, and I don't want that to be the case. And, and if it's not true, I'm going to avoid doubt because I don't want to have to dig into that. I don't want to have to expose something I don't want to see or want to believe or want to have to walk away from. We also think that doubt means our faith is weak or that it's the antithesis of faith. I actually say it's the opposite. Doubt can really strengthen your faith if, keyword if, if you let it to drive you to seek out truth. Man, then it can bring some good stuff. You got to test your own faith. You got to test in what you believe. This is true for Christians and for everybody else. It doesn't matter what you believe or don't believe. Test what you believe. Don't just, uh, don't just accept what people say to you, like me included. Don't just adopt whatever the popular opinion is of the day. That changes all the time. Don't just go with the flow. Like test what you believe. Test what you've accepted as truth. Test what the world tells you. And the world says, this is right over here. This is truth right here. That over there, that's wrong. Be on board over here. Test all that. Don't just accept it for truth. You gotta dig in. Because here's the thing, truth, real truth, is not scared of being tested. Because real truth is exposed whenever it's tested. So the Christians in Colossae, they're wrestling with adopting what the culture in front of them was putting in front. They were, they were wrestling with, well, let's just adopt the popular opinion of today because that's a whole lot easier than digging in to see what, if what I believe is really true or not. They were taking the path of least resistance. They were being fed syncretism. That's what they were wrestling with. Syncretism basically says you can create whatever belief system or religion you want 
by picking and choosing from whatever philosophy or religion you want. But if I'm just picking and choosing what I want to believe based on what I see in front of me, that's lazy or arrogant or both. It's lazy in the fact that I don't want to do the work. Like I'm not going to dig in. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to test things. I'm just going to adopt it because that's a whole lot easier. Because everything I see in front of me, for the most part, it's all somewhat good and it's all pretty much the same thing. So I'm just going to pick and choose what I want. That's lazy. And it's arrogant in the fact that if I'm just picking and choosing what I want based on what I see, what I'm saying is my opinion is supreme. That I got the answers. That, that I can make sense of all this mess, that I can come up with the best opinion, the best belief system, the best idea going forward based on what I see or based on what I've experienced or based on what I've heard. What I'm saying is that I am the philosophical and religious expert. What syncretism does is it puts man in the ultimate seat of authority. That's a dangerous proposition. It's a dangerous proposition. And I think that's even easier for us today. Like maybe even more so than in first century Colossae because there is so much information available to us today. And it's instant too. Google, social media have made experts of all of us. Experts in our own minds. And you can be an expert on whatever subject you want because there's so much information. Because it's instant for all of us. What we've done, it's easy to assume this, we've taken information and knowledge and we made them the same thing. They're one and the same. So then we hear things like this, like, you know, the more you know. Do you remember those NBC commercials with the shooting star? Da -da -da -da. It doesn't sound like that at all. Um, I, I can hear it in my head, but sorry, that was really bad. The more you know, we hear things like knowledge is power. So we just go to task, we dive in, we, we study whatever we can study. We read articles and books and blog posts and social media posts. We listen to podcast after podcast after podcast. If we don't know something, we say that's what Google's for. How many of you said that before? So we dive in. Like all this stuff is good stuff. Like content's great. I'm all in. The podcasts and books I listen to and read, a ton of stuff. But here's what we're doing. What we're really talking about is the accumulation of information. We're not necessarily talking about knowledge. Information and knowledge are two different things. But a lot of times we believe they're one. Like we believe that the more I know, the more information I accumulate, the more information I possess, then I'm going to have a greater advantage over the people that are around me. That's the thinking that was seeping into Colossae. People were telling them, you got to know more. The prominent belief system that they were wrestling with in Colossae at that time is really the beginning of something called Gnosticism. We don't hear a whole lot about Gnosticism anymore today. It's not a big thing. Although there are aspects of it that are very alive and, and well today. That's how it's relevant to us. Gnosticism said this, get knowledge above everything else. Knowledge is supreme. Knowledge saves you. There were people coming into the city, they were saying, hey, you need to get more and more and more knowledge. You need to have as much as you can. You need to have this special knowledge, which was always unclear. Nobody, nobody really knew what they were talking about. Get more knowledge. Like Jesus is a great starting place. Jesus is cool. We're in on Jesus. But there's so much more that you can know. And the more you know, the more you can experience and just free your mind. Just know more stuff. Just adopt this, this religious rites and rituals that we have, maybe some special language and some passwords, and you're good. 
Gnosticism was very cultish. And it had this know-it-all superiority complex going on. And I know that's something that we don't ever see today at all, do we, right? <laughs> I'm laying on the sarcasm really thick there, right? okay? And that can be intimidating. It can, because whenever you've got somebody that's extremely confident or strong-willed or willing to tell you what you lack and what you need, that can be intimidating and maybe even convincing. The Christians in Colossae, they were like, well, Maybe the Gnostics are right. Like maybe we are missing out on something. Like maybe we need more of this special knowledge, whatever that means. This emphasis on the accumulation of as much knowledge as you could get. It also played into something that all of us have and all of us wrestle with. It played into the desire to be elite. Now whenever we see somebody that's elite, we both at the same time, we envy them and then we also vilify them. Like whenever we see elitism, we, we scoff at elitism, we don't like it, especially if we're not in that camp. But deep down, all of us, every single one of us, this is human nature. To some level or another, we all wish we were in that camp. We all wish we were elite. And just something, can I be elite in something? Can it be about me? I want to be the person that's above everybody else. I want to be a part of the inner group that everybody else looks to. I want to be a part of the group that everybody envies and wants to be a part of and says those are the people that have got it together. I want to be elite. Every single one of us wrestles with that to some degree or another. Gnosticism played into that big time. It promised you can be elite. You just got to know more stuff than everybody else. And when you do, your knowledge will save you. Your knowledge is power. Knowledge is power, absolutely. I would, I would completely affirm that statement. Knowledge is power if, if you really know what knowledge is. That's what Paul's going to get after. In chapter 1, verse 9, he says this. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. Like we ask God to give you complete knowledge, complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Sounds good to me. Like, I want to know God better and better. I, I want these things that Paul's talking about. I want to bear good fruit. I want to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to God. Man, this, this sounds great. Have you ever thought this about somebody before? This, this simple thought. Have you ever thought, if they only knew... Like if this person only knew this, fill, fill in the blank. If they only knew this, it would be so much better for them. Wow, it would be so much better for me because I'm around them all the time. It'd be so much better for all of the people around them if they only knew. Have you ever thought that before? So I've got a young daughter um, and already, I mean, it's bad. Uh, she already has me wrapped around her fingers. Um, I don't even know that she knows the power that she has over me. Or maybe she does, and she just wants me to think that she doesn't know, and that's part of her little manipulative plan. I don't know. I don't know. She, all she has to do is this. All she's got to do is look at me with those big blue eyes and say, Daddy, I love you. Do you want me to buy you a pony right now? I will. Whatever you want. Like, is, is this where I just hand you my wallet? I don't know. How does this work? Like, if, if one of my boys comes into our room at night and wants to get in our bed, my reaction is going to be something like, get. Like, get. No, you're fine. Go back to your bed. 
But if Georgia, my daughter, if Georgia comes in and says, Daddy, can we snuggle? Thank you for understanding. Thank you. I feel a lot better about myself right now. Yeah, my answer is going to be something like, okay, sweet girl, yes, come on in, right? There's just something different about daddies and daughters. So there's a a man that I've known for a long time and I have a great amount of respect for. He gave me some great advice right after Georgia was born. We were talking about his kids. He's got four kids. They're all college age or older. And and I I started asking him about his daughter because I've always just been really impressed with his daughter. She's, She's in her early 20s, just a smart kid, really gifted in both sports and music, one of those people that you don't like that can do both. It's just not cool. Um, I'm just, I'm jealous. I'm just being honest. Uh, She's a great leader. And and from my perspective, she never got caught up in the drama with boys, at least not from what I saw. It never looked like from the outside, it never looked like she was putting her identity in what a guy thought about her. She didn't look like she was, you know, flaunting herself all over social media. She, She wasn't trying to She wasn't making dumb decisions just to get the attention from a guy. At least that's what it looked like from my perspective. So I asked him about this. I said, hey, how do I, like, how do I keep Georgia from falling into that same trap? Like, I know girls are going to chase boys. That's part of it. But how do I keep her and, and protect her from putting her identity in what a guy thinks about her? Or seeking value in what a guy thinks about her? I don't want her to fall in that trap. I, I want her to be strong and a leader on her own. Like, how do I protect her from that? And here's what he said. He said, as her daddy, if Georgia knows how much you love her, she won't go searching for it elsewhere. It's like, whoo. If Georgia knows how much I love her, if she knows how much I love her, she's not going to go searching for that love somewhere else. Somewhere else that can hurt her or take advantage of her or not love her back. Like, that's what I want for her. I want her to know how much I love. She's got to know it. If she knows, then she can thrive in that. She can be safe in that. She can grow in that. Not only grows a strong young girl, but then a strong woman one day. She's got to know that. And if she does, man, that can send her in the right direction. She can do the right things. She can take action. But if she doesn't know that, then that can lead to some consequences and some pain. Like all of us have heard stories about that with, with young women across the world. I don't want that for my daughter. It's kind of what Paul's getting at here in Colossians 1. He says, guys, if if you only know, like I already know that you you love Jesus, but I want to remind you, if you know how much Jesus loves you, if you know who God is, if you know what he's about, if you know what he's doing in the world, if if you know what he wants for you, and if you know what he's calling you to, you are only going to continue to thrive and you're going to keep bearing fruit. He's talking to Christians when he says that, but the truth is applicable if you're not a Christian. He's saying, if you would only know how much Jesus loves you, and it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what your story is, what you've done, what you said, what's been done to you. If you only know how much Jesus loves you, if you knew what he did for you, if if you knew what he's still doing for you, if you knew what he wants for you, if he knew what he was calling your life to, you will thrive and you will bear fruit. That's what he's saying. Paul's praying for this. He's not praying for social media or Google or Wikipedia information. He's praying for their full knowledge that will lead to spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, I want to get technical for just a second, so stick with me, because I, th- I think this is important. Colossians is originally written in Greek. In fact, most of the New Testament is written in Greek. And the word for, for knowledge here, the word for knowledge in Greek is gnosis. Gnosis. It's where we get the word Gnosticism from. 
means to know. That's all it means. But that's not the word that Paul uses right here for knowledge. He uses the word epinosis. What epinosis means is full and complete knowledge. It means discerning the divine knowledge of God that is precise and correct. That's a much more intense word and definition than just to know. What he's saying is he's calling out the Gnostics. He's saying, yeah, you want knowledge, you want full knowledge. You ain't got it in any other belief system. You can't just create it. Man can't figure it out. If you want full and real knowledge that it's eternal and lasting, you can find that only in Jesus Christ. That's for us today, whether you know Jesus or not. If you want real wisdom, if you want real knowledge, it's found only in Jesus. Not what our world offers us, not what another belief system or philosophy offers us. Real knowledge that leads to understanding and wisdom is found only, only, only in Jesus Christ. That's what he's praying for. He's praying for epinosis, full knowledge. And it doesn't mean that you know everything. Like if you have epinosis, it's not a superiority claim at all. It means that you can recognize, discern, and then experience God's knowledge. Here's what it means. Epinosis is when you're, like, when you're reading the Bible. Say you're reading a chapter or a story or even just a single verse. And you're reading it and all of a sudden you're like, Ah, oh, I get it. Now I understand that. It's that aha moment when you're reading part of the Bible. Maybe you've read, it, you've read it a dozen times before, or you're in your rooted group discussing something, or at mops, or in your student ministry small group, and you're talking and all of a sudden it just clicks. You're like, I get it. I understand that now. That's epinosis. I love those moments where it just clicks. You're like, oh, I understand that now. I never caught that before. That's what Paul's praying for. That's what we want today because that kind of knowledge leads to a different direction. It leads in the right direction. It affects every aspect of our lives, and it leads us to the right action. That's key. It's the action. Here's how, here's how this applies to us right now. Knowledge today, knowledge is worth nothing unless it leads to a changed life and the right action, the right conduct. Knowledge means nothing today by itself. If you're just accumulating knowledge for knowledge's sake, and there's no action attached to it, it's not, it's not knowledge. It's just information. Information becomes knowledge when there's action attached to it. And I think this is where we got to be really careful in 2019. Since it's so easy for us to accumulate so much information and assume that that's knowledge, that can lead to some deceptively harmful consequences. And I know that sounds crazy. Like, Matt, did you just say that learning is harmful? I did not say that. That's not what I'm saying. Here, here's what I'm getting after. If you're just stockpiling as much information as you possibly can, that can hurt you and it can hurt other people around you. So the Gnostics were all about more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. Get more, get more. And if you don't have this level of knowledge, whatever that level is, if you don't have that, sorry, you're on the outside looking in. Sorry about you. You're left out. They were okay with just pushing people out that weren't elite, that didn't have the special knowledge, that didn't have enough. They were okay isolating them. So for us today, if we're just accumulating information, have we created an environment here unintentionally where people are going to be isolated and left out because they don't have a certain level of knowledge, whatever, whatever level that is? Are we using language here that if you've been in the church for a long time, you're completely going to grasp. You're going to get it right away. But what about the people that are coming for the very first time? Every single week there's somebody here and it's their first time. Somebody in here right now, it's your first time. 
And it may be your first time ever in a church. So if you're following Christ, we've got, to be, we've got to be cognizant of that. Are we using language that makes them feel like, oh, I, I don't belong here because I don't understand what they're talking about? Or do we just take a few minutes to explain it and walk people along with us? If we're just accumulating information, thinking it's knowledge and doing nothing with it, unintentionally we can isolate people around us. And then it can also be harmful for you. Just accumulating more and more information, more and more what we think is knowledge, and just holding on to it, that can create pride, selfishness, and arrogance in you and me. Like if I just keep eating and eating and eating and eating and eating, and never do anything to work off those calories, is that going to be good for my body? No. No, I'm going to be really unhealthy really quickly. If I'm just accumulating as much information, as much content as I can, and not doing anything with it, it's going to create pride. It's going to create some arrogance. And it can even create selfishness. Is the knowledge that I have, is it, is it for me or is it for other people? If I'm not using what I know, what I've experienced to serve and bless other people, isn't that the definition of being selfish? We don't think of knowledge in that way. We don't think of it in terms of being selfish. But if I'm just stockpiling it and holding it on for myself and not using it to bless other people and to serve other people, by definition, I'm being selfish. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says it this way, while knowledge makes us feel like we're important, yeah, look at me. Look at what I know. Come ask me questions. I would love for you to ask me questions. While knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. There's a push to seek out knowledge throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, but it's always attached to love and service. It's not meant for you to hold on for yourself. It's meant to bless you in your relationship with the Lord and then use to bless other people. So if you're using what you know to get closer to the Lord, to serve and bless other people, now you're on. Now you really know something. The more you use what you know, the more selfless you'll become. And the more selfless you become, the more joyful you become. Knowledge by itself is worth nothing unless it leads to a changed life and the right action, the right conduct. Like if you're just getting and collecting more and more content, that's all you're doing, more content, more content, then you're not going anywhere. You're not making an impact. And you're also not gonna leave a legacy. Like if I'm just trying to accumulate as much content and theology and biblical knowledge that I can, and those things are amazing, we should pursue those things. I think my personal opinion, the greatest problem in the American church today is biblical illiteracy. We should pursue those things. We should have a culture for learning and a hunger for that. But if I'm not doing anything with my biblical knowledge or my theological content, if I'm not using it to bless others, to serve, to be on mission, then I've wasted it. It's a huge miss. If I have an owner's manual for, for this project that I want to build out this weekend, and I read that owner's manual from cover to cover, if I do nothing with it, if I do nothing with what I learned from that owner's manual then I've wasted it. It's real value and it's real impact on me and other people comes when I act on it. That's what full knowledge really means. It's a full knowledge that leads in the right direction and fuels the right actions. So my question is, what are you doing with what you know? What are you doing with it? 
I, honestly, I had to wrestle with this all week. Because I feel like I know some stuff at times. If I don't check my pride, I feel like I know some stuff. And that's a problem. Whenever you feel like you know stuff, arrogance, man, that leads to problems. Man, I get caught up in that all the time. What are you doing with what you know? Here's the thing. All of us have a different level of knowledge. Every single one of us has a different level of knowledge, and that's okay. Because despite popular opinion, you don't have to know everything in order to do something. You don't have to know everything in order to do something. You do not have to be an expert to get in the game. Every single one of us has some level of knowledge. What are you doing with the knowledge that you have? Are you putting it into action? That's what Paul's getting at. He's praying for knowledge, understanding. He's praying for conduct that goes with it, that bears fruit. Because here's the Hebrew mind. The Hebrew mind was this. Knowing something and doing something were always linked together. You're going to see that thread throughout the Bible. Here was the Hebrew perspective. I think this is really interesting. A person didn't know something unless he or she did it. In the Hebrew mind, you didn't know something until you actually did it. Think about that. Like I could walk into the bathroom today that, that my kids share, and I walk into that bathroom at my own risk. I could walk in there. Thank you for that. That was awesome. Great. I went over like a lead balloon. Sorry, your kids' bathrooms are all, you know, excellent and clean. Mine's not. So I could walk into their bathroom today, and I could see a towel on the floor. I could look at the towel and say to my kids, guys, what do we do with the towel? Right? And whenever I ask that question, they immediately respond. Sometimes they even cut me off before I can finish the question. Guys, what, what do we do with the towel? I know, Daddy. Anybody else here? Parents, please tell me you've experienced that. Like, okay, because I'm getting a little nervous up here that I'm the only one. So I know, Daddy, I know, what, I know what I'm supposed to do with the towel. So then as their father, I respond and say, okay, if you know, then why didn't you do it, right? It's not, like, it's not this hard. Like, if you knew it, why didn't you do it? Because knowing and doing are always combined. You only know what you actually do. This is where authentic Christianity is born. Knowing and doing, that's real spiritual knowledge. Let me just, I'll just speak for myself for a second. Knowing and then acting on it sometimes can be pretty hard. It can be. Like as a Christian, I know to tell people about Jesus. I know to invite them to church. But at times I don't. I know about serving. I know why we do it for blessing other people and actually serving creates growth in you. I know about that, but at times I don't do it. Like I know about encouragement, why I should do it and how it impacts people, but at times I don't. I know about generosity, but at times I'm not. I know to avoid things that tempt me, but at times I don't. I know how to, uh, to disciple other guys, but at times I don't. Knowing and doing, they're not always linked for me. I, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit that, but that's the truth. I'm just, just being honest. They're not always linked for me, but that's what epinosis is. Knowing and doing together. Here's the thing. The more you truly serve God, the more you're going to open yourself up to the knowledge of God. And the more you know God, the more you're going to want to serve God. It's this spiral that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. If you want to grow spiritually, that's how it's done. Knowing and doing is a fundamental law to spiritual growth. So right now, whatever it is that you're doing, is that backing up what you think you know? Like if you know Jesus, like, 
Authenticate your knowledge by what you're doing. Like, what are you doing? Act on it. I mean, let's just start with some of the obvious places where you can actually act on, on what you know. That, that can be right here in this building. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, if you know the Lord, if you know God's word, praise God. Praise God that you've been doing that and you know it. But there's a lot of people in our church that don't. There's a lot of people here that, that are checking this church thing out for the very first time. There's a lot of people that are brand new to their faith in Jesus. There's a lot of people here that don't believe, that are just checking things out. And not, they're not sure. They got questions. We want to be that. Here's the thing. Put yourself in a position. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, if you know his word, put yourself in a position where you can rub shoulders with those people. You know what one of the things that we are losing quickly in the American church? We're losing it really quickly, and this is a huge need. We're losing patriarchs. It's the same thing is true with matriarchs, but we're losing patriarchs at a very rapid rate. And can I tell you what I want to do for us as a church? I'm going to speak. I'm in my 30s. I'll speak for people in their 30s. I'll speak for people in their 20s, even their 40s. If you're in your 50s, you're way too old. I can't speak to you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry, <laughs> my filter didn't catch that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. A 50 is approaching a whole lot quicker than I thought. Here's the thing. I'll speak for, for my generation. I'll speak for people that are brand new to the church. You know what I want to do is I want to grab them by the shoulders like this and turn them this way and say, be like that guy. Be like that woman, that patriarch, that matriarch. That's what decades of faithful following Jesus looks like. If you've been following Jesus for decades, if you know his word, if you're bearing fruit, you are a model. You cannot just walk in one day and say, I want to be a model of spiritual growth. I want to be a model of what faithfulness looks like. You can't just say that and decide to be it one day. You got to earn that. And there's many, many of you in here that have earned that right. I want to grab people by the shoulders and point at you and say, that's what it looks like. Because we don't have a lot of patriarchs anymore. We need more people to point to and say, that's what it looks like. I had a mentor tell me once, he's, he's uh, in his late 70s, and we were talking about going back to uh, my age when he was in ministry, and we talked about finishing well. I want to finish well. And one thing he said was, if you want to finish well, it starts today. Your legacy doesn't start tomorrow. Your legacy starts today. And he said, Matt, if you want to finish well, it starts today, and it's one day at a time. And then he said this, this caught my attention. He said, there's about 2,000 people that are identifiable in the Bible. About 2,000 that we can identify by name or, or know who they are. Out of the ones that we know about, some of them we don't know how, how they finished up. But of the ones that we know out of that 2,000, only about 100 of them finished well. That scares me. I want to be a part of the 100. And I want all of you to be a part of the 100. So you've, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you're the model. Put yourself in a spot where you can rub shoulders with people. Put yourself in an environment where you can disciple other people, whether that's being a rooted facilitator or being in mops or serving in student ministry or just discipling somebody one-on-one. -on -one. At the very least, if you're present out in the lobby, if you're present in here, just be a model that we can point to and say, that's what it looks like. Rub shoulders with other people. Another way you can act on what you know is just by serving. Like that's one of the biggest ways to do it. It's one of the most important ways too. Serve by acting on what you know. We have more and more families coming to our church, which is awesome, which means we have more and more kids in the kids' ministry. 
Every single week, we're trying to get on their level, every age level, and meet them where they're at with Jesus. We're trying to surround parents, surround families to help them. Because this whole parenting thing, I've learned, is hard. It's hard. Man, if you know about serving, you can get on the team there because they need you. You can make an impact. Act on what you know about serving by being part of that team. Or maybe it's a greeter at the front doors or in the lobby. Every single weekend, we want to create an environment that is warm and welcoming to everybody, whether it's their first time walking in or they've been walking in for 30 years. If you know about hospitality, be hospitable out there. The New Testament talks about hospitality all the time. It's a gift. Serve there to create that environment. Or maybe even in the parking lot. We got more and more cars coming in. We want to make parking easy and efficient for people because parking can be a pain in the neck at times. You can serve out there to help in that way. You know to serve. That's a way that you can act on it. Or maybe it's on the worship team or the tech team. Every single weekend, we want to give people a glimpse of heaven. Well, we want to lead people into the throne room where they can worship our God. If you have technical talent, if you know how all that stuff works, you can serve on that team. If you just have an appetite to learn and grow in it, we will teach you. If you have musical talent, you can serve by leading people in worship. You can serve by, by glorifying God with your talents. If you don't have musical talent, don't get on the stage. It gets awkward for everybody. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just dashed somebody's dreams in here. I'm sorry. It's not American Idol. Not American Idol, right? But whatever you have, whatever you know, because all of us know something, use it. Act on it. That's how you will grow as a follower of Christ. That's how we will bless and serve people around us, which is what we're called to do. That's how we as a church, we as a family, this is a family. So we start accomplishing the mission that Jesus gave us. So if you know about Jesus, are you acting like him? If you know about generosity, are you being generous? If you know about evangelism, are you telling people about Jesus? Are you inviting, inviting them to church? If you know about discipleship, are you discipling people? If you know about prayer, are you praying? If you know about encouragement, are you encouraging? You only do what you know. So what are you doing? Are we a church that knows a lot of stuff? Yeah, we know a lot of stuff. Are we a church that acts on it? I want to be a church that acts on it. I want to be a man that just acts on what I know. I want to be epinosis. So there's so much more that I wanted to get to today, um, but we can't, we, we just can't. But I want to do something a little bit different in how we close out. In, in just a minute, we've got a few people that are going to get baptized. Baptism is an outward expression of an inner, inward transformation, an inward faith. When someone says, I'm all in on Jesus, I'm following him as my Lord and my Savior. I don't have all the answers. I don't have my life cleaned up, but I'm in on Jesus. I'm going to follow him. Baptism is that outward step that we get to watch right now and just celebrate. We're going to do that here in just a second. But what I want to do right now to close out, I just want all of you to stand up with me. Just, just stand up. I promise I'm not going to do anything weird. This will be fine. So Paul's praying in chapter one, he's praying for knowledge. He's praying for conduct that would go with that. And he's praying for fruit to come from it. Paul's praying for the Colossians as a pastor. So as your pastor, he gets really specific here in verse 11, what he prays for. As your pastor, I just want to pray these over you. I just want to pray them over you, that this would be true for you as an individual, for us as a church. 
And then as soon as I'm done, we're going to celebrate as people get baptized. We have a bunch throughout the weekend. We're going to celebrate as they get baptized, and we're going to get after it in worship, all right? So go ahead, just, you can bow your heads, you can close your eyes, just listen to what these words say. You can do whatever you want, but let me pray these over you. Father, thank you for your word that's living and active, that there's power in this. Father, I pray that this, what you've written here in Colossians 11, 1, 11 through 14, that this would be true of everybody in this room right now, that this would be true of everyone that comes in here this weekend and people that are a part of our church that aren't here this weekend or people that come for the first time next weekend. Would you let this be true for all of us right now? Father, may they be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you, Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Let that be true. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and the transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sins. We pray this and ask this and expect this in Jesus' name. Amen.